Professor and the Hack. This is episode 12. Thanks if you've been listening from the start. Uh, uh, you know, what can I do? I, I throw the gifts of my children's best wishes under your feet. Um, Thanks or commiserations? Both. But if you're still with us, <laughs> you need something from us. So there you go. Thanks. That's as, as good as it gets. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack and I'm the Hack. I'm Hugh Remington. The Professor is indeed a professor. Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Hugh. How are you doing? I'm well, yeah. The election's off, we're done and dusted, our reputations have been trashed, pilloried <laughs> through the public space. <laughs> I, I'm now making I, I'm making predictions my thing, actually. Yeah, uh, do it. A lot of supporters of the coalition who are smarting at the fact that they won when most of us, me included, didn't think that they would, I'm pointing out to them all that I'm firmly in the camp now of predicting that Scott Morrison will win the next election, so they should all take some comfort from that. Or the kiss of death, man, <laughs> given your reputation for... Uh, <laughs> which you willingly embrace, of being appalling with your predictions. I actually... We're going to get on to the ministry and the shadow ministry and what mm. all that means in just a second, but let's let's just enjoy this for a moment because I'm going to make a prediction three years out and say that uh, Scott Morrison's going to be very hard to dislodge. Yeah, I, th- I think that is the most likely scenario at this point in time because it, it doesn't feel like the risk which we've talked about, which is that it's 93 or it's 2004 where... Governments had big wins in some ways unexpected, particularly in 93, and then they were bundled out three years later. That's the risk. That's the hubris that, if you like, Scott Morrison wants to avoid. However, it doesn't feel like that's where they're going, does it? You know, it's a new Prime Minister who is uh, who is now doing well. Uh, it's an opposition that's in a state of shock. And there's a reset button, which there wasn't really... A, well, there certainly wasn't a reset button in 2004 when, when Latham lost to John Howard, and there wasn't really a reset button in 93 when John Hewson lost the election against Paul Keating. So that's the risk for Labor, certainly. Uh, It's hard to see him getting dislodged. I'd agree with you about that prediction. I don't know Mm. if you'll be happy about that. And I think one of his great strengths is that he's dull. (laughs) You know, Malcolm Turnbull wasn't dull. Uh, Tony Abbott wasn't dull. Julia Gillard wasn't dull. Kevin Rudd wasn't dull. The last Prime Minister who made a strength about being dull in many ways, the guy who said the best position to be in in politics, to have people think you're doing all right, was John Howard. And um, in that sense, this feels a bit more like 98. Howard scraped over the line in 98. I think he had 80 seats but less than 50% of the two-party vote. There was a view in Labor that over time they might come back but, of course, he then embedded himself over time, increasing his majority in 01 and then increasing it again in 04. Scott Morrison, I know that he's been talking internally to his troops that the interest is in trying to target Labor seats because they've only got 77 seats. You know, they're barely over the line for majority. But there are an absolute plethora of marginal seats that Labor holds. There aren't that many marginal seats that the government holds because of the nature of the swing at the last election. So just as the numbers essentially started off as being more favourable to Labor at the last election, didn't work out that way for them, this time the numbers look as if they're working more effectively for the coalition. And it's hard to see where Labor put holes in the coalition. I mean, the coalition and Scott Morrison one would assume partly with their leadership rules, partly with the authority he has from the election, it's hard to see him being internally dislodged. You know, there's no obvious challenger. Peter Dutton's not certainly not going to do it. Uh, and I don't see either a Christian Porter or a Josh Frydenberg as A, interested or B, ready. So he's pretty unassailable internally. That was really in many ways the biggest problem that this government has had over the last six years was the flip-flopping between Turnbull and Tony Abbott and then, of course, the rise of... Dutton and the replacement of Scott Morrison. So there's that. But even on the policy front, Hugh, where does the opposition pick holes or where do the opposition pick holes 
in the government. I mean, if they go after them on social policy things, I think Scott Morrison sort of looks to play a dead bat to that. The economy, there are risks in the economy. I wrote about this on the weekend for the Oz. But does Labor benefit from that? If the economy tanks, the Liberals say, well, stick with us because we're better managers and that's what the public rightly or wrongly thinks. If the economy goes well, then Scott Morrison says, hey, look, I've delivered the surpluses, things are going well, stick with us. So they almost can't lose on the economy, whether they manage it well or mismanage it or whether it gets away from them because of economic conditions nationally and globally because of this reputation that they have as being the better economic managers. It's true. The winds are behind them for the time being. We do know if there's one lesson from the election just gone, it's that the voters decide and they'll do as they damn well please. And don't make predictions. <laughs> and don't make predictions. Um, it, it's true, and and you know, just as it was difficult numerically for uh, for Labor, sorry, for the coalition to get up, they did it anyway. And it's difficult next time for for Labor. Who knows what might happen? But that takes us to the front bench. We now know who's going to line up in the teams. Who's got the stronger team? I actually think Labor on paper appear to have the stronger team, but and this is a big but, a lot of that strength has been an assumption about their ministerial experience from the Rudd-Gillard years, but that's not necessarily looked at fondly from voters or from their perspective. And the government's front bench does now, as a result of the win almost, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It looks stronger than it perhaps did in the lead-up to the election. So having won an election on the economy, Josh Frydenberg looks stronger as treasurer than he did pre the election where he was, if you like, a novice in the job. I think most people think Christian Porter is pretty competent and that's why he's been given two key portfolios and Leader of the House as a role... And then they've got the likes of Peter Dutton, who is always controversial, but few people think that he doesn't have the mongrel in him to keep the boat stopped. So a tick on that front in terms of his KPIs. They don't have great women in the lineup because they don't have enough women in the parliament. So they disproportionately draw on those women for the front bench. And so that's a weakness for the government. So while I say on paper that Labor perhaps looks like it's got a stronger team, in practice when you go through the individual portfolios, it's more that there don't appear to be the weaknesses in the government that there might have appeared to be pre the election. And I have to say this, you know, people like Christopher Pine won't like hearing this, but the departure of Pine, the departure earlier than that of George Brandis, the fact that you don't have an Abbott and a Turnbull in the midst to cause problems uh, in terms of instability... These are all factors that play to the advantage of the government. Yes, they've lost a Kelly O'Dwyer as a senior woman, but she was seen internally at least as somewhat controversial. So the, the recalibration is good for them, but there are still some older heads there as well. I so, would argue that Stuart Robert is a weakness. So by and large you're saying that uh, the coalition has cleaned out well. Yeah, I mean this is a clean out. There was a lot of people, me included, that talked about in the post-Howard era because they quickly looked competitive again when Tony Abbott came back and almost won that 2010 election, there wasn't the clean-out that there needed to be. So I often use the terminology that you had the second 11 from the Howard years that John Howard didn't really trust to take key portfolios and to be at the front line when you had him and Costello and earlier on Reith or right through Downer in foreign affairs as the main people. Suddenly that second 11 were running the show and I'd, I'd include the likes of Tony Abbott in that. You know, he was a senior minister in the Howard government, but he was always somebody that was considered to be a bit of a, a bit of a maverick. But now that they're all gone, uh, and some of the next generation, like your Frydenbergs and your Porters that I mentioned, they're seen as pretty solid. Angus Taylor's fairly solid, but he's got some repair work to do because he's had difficulty in the portfolio mix that he's had around energy, and he now adds 
climate change to that. So there is a reset there. We'll just have to see how they go. Well, you, you mentioned second 11, so let's let's try and extend a sporting metaphor here in some ways because it gets a little bit as in key position play. Uh, you mentioned, I'll get on to Christina Keneally against uh, Peter Dutton, which is mm. going to be interesting to watch, but uh, you mentioned Stuart Robert. Um, Stuart Robert, I suspect, is not a household name. He's a uh, gregarious, agreeable kind of character personally, but he has been uh, terribly accident-prone, mm. that's being polite about it. Uh, would he be the weak link that, who now goes up against uh, Bill Shorten, who has something to prove in the area in which Bill Shorten knows a great deal, and that is the National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, that the first target for Bill Shorten, his every morning waking goal, is to prove his worth mm. by wiping the floor with Stuart Robert. I think that is the way that it will come about, but I think there are risks in this for Labor, which I wouldn't mind us going through. But starting with where you put that question, absolutely, I think that that's a weakness for the government. Stuart Robert is accident-prone. It's his own colleagues, not me, saying this. They say it's only a matter of time before the next scandal or controversy or misstep comes out. We will see. Maybe that's all happened now and he's learnt from that. I certainly know that his proximity as a friend to the Prime Minister will probably help him at one level because you would have thought that they will work pretty closely around the NDIS. But this is the caveat. Even if Bill Shorten does a very good job holding Stuart Robert to account around the NDIS, as you say, a portfolio he well understands because he was one of the architects of the NDIS in his first front bench role, that doesn't necessarily help Albo because then that just promotes Bill Shorten. He's the past. He might have ambitions for the future. You know, it, it raises other issues if Bill Shorten does well taking down Stuart Robert and attacking the government over the NDIS. It cuts Th both ways. So that's a fair point. It, it, it creates problems for Albanese. But the first problem, if he was to succeed in that, uh, I think everyone who watches the game knows that Stuart Robert is potentially mm. a potential weak link in there. So, And given that he's there because of his deep personal friendship and, and uh, alliance over the years with Scott Morrison, if you do wound or force out or do something against uh, Stuart Robert, that is going to be some of that mud is going to flick up in the face of Scott Morrison. So that's working for Labor. Yeah. Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're assuming this is going to happen in that way. But uh, Well, if that if does, it does happen, initially it works for Labor, but then it perhaps causes issues for them because it's the re-emergence of, of Bill Shorten. Who knows? But I, I'd, I'd rather triangulate one aspect of the way that the front bench has been calibrated by Anthony Albanese. I, just, I, I think his front bench is strong. We mentioned that before. And I think most of the positioning is pretty good. But there's a triumvirate of failure, I believe, in terms of the allocation of portfolios. So let's look at the new deputy leader, Richard Miles. He continues as shadow defence. Let's look at Christina Keneally, the former New South Wales Premier, of course. Her faction wasn't even going to give her a front bench role. She's now the deputy Senate leader and she takes home affairs where she will square off against Peter Dutton. And then you have, as we've been talking about, Bill Shorten in the NDIS. I would have switched those three around. And Labor people I've spoken to think those three should have been switched around as well. How so? Well, as deputy, Richard Miles gets to choose his portfolio. He chose to stay in defence. He should have chosen home affairs. I know that Peter Dutton would consider him the strongest opponent in that space. The government's view is that he, quote-unquote, gets it uh, in a way that perhaps others like Christina Keneally don't. 
I hosted a show on Sky for years with Christina Kinnear. I think she's a talent. I have written that she should be on the front bench. But Home Affairs, boy, she has very dripping wet views about boat turnbacks. Some of those quotes are being used against her already. She should have been in NDIS. She's a former state disability minister out of New South Wales. She gets that portfolio. She's a good arguer. She would have muscled up very nicely in that space. That would have then freed Richard Miles to take home affairs, as would have been his right as the deputy. And as I mentioned, the government is most concerned about him in that space rather than Christina Keneally. And then the logical leftover spot is that Bill Shorten then gets defence. Defence is a senior role but it's a respectful role for him to be given, but it also gets him out of the domestic national debate, which is probably not a bad thing in the wake of losing the unlosable election. So he sits in defence. And I think if they'd switched those three that way, it would have been a more powerful remainder to the front bench with all the other roles that are in play as well. Defence is, is a hard job. It, you know, the defence ministers that I've known over the years, they work hard. Yeah, but he's a shadow If they're going to do it well, well, shadow, shadow What does defense. he do? You know, he just oh, sort of I sits guess. there. Yes, I guess so. I mean, it, nowadays defence is seen in, in part as kind of uh, manufacturing stimulus um, as being part of the role. It would have been quite good in all of that. Um, but, but look, let's go to Christina Keneally. The decision's been made. She gets home affairs. You say she's dripping wet on some of those uh, boat turnbacks. She has made plain now that the position of the party and one that she embraces is that the government supports turnbacks. That basically, they're trying to be in lockstep. Yeah, but Hugh, let's strap her up to a lie detector test and see how she goes saying that she supports turnbacks. I mean, I, I, I just don't believe that she has that support in her heart or even necessarily her head. A lot of people in Labor don't. I suspect Anthony Albanese doesn't either. But, boy, you are putting that issue front and centre when you put someone like Christina Keneally in that role, you know? I mean, I just I just don't know that that's a good thing. You know, she she's good. She should be in absolutely one of the senior roles. And I, I hear that she was going to get that role in government, but getting it in government is different for Labor than getting it in opposition. Get it in government and you can perhaps try try to create a more humanitarian approach to the portfolio and hope that you can do so in tandem with stopping the boats and then say, I told you so, to the government and see if that the, happens. The, the trouble in opposition, for, you just get attacked. Yeah, the trouble for Labor with that policy area is that anything that they do, no matter how on the fringes, is immediately picked up by Peter Dutton, who's made a masterwork of this as being evidence of a catastrophic weakening of border protection and et cetera, et cetera, yep. and the boats will all come. And, you know, the electorate has bought that line. How do you disprove the negative? When, when he says Labor's stance on this will restart the boats and you've got quotes galore from Christina over the years saying that she doesn't support turnbacks and she can say it till she's blue in the face that she does now, uh, she's also said that she doesn't even support offshore processing. Uh, things I don't support either, just quietly, but I'm not trying to be the shadow foreign affairs spokes. Sorry, the shadow uh, home, home affairs, affairs spokesperson. So, you know, Peter Dutton says all of that. They've got the cachet in this space. They stop the boats. Voters tend to trust them on this according to the polls. So I, th I just think it's a hard one for yeah. Labor. Peter Dutton, straight out of the blocks. I'm going to quote him here. This was his response in a doorstop interview after uh, Christina Keneally was uh, named as the shadow home affairs uh, minister by Labor. Uh, Christina Keneally, I predict, will be someone who is very spiteful, very nasty and very personal in her attacks. That's been her history. 
Peter Dutton said that? Peter Dutton said that about Christina Keneally. Takes one to know one, right? <laughs> a little bit of projection, I believe, is a psychological <laughs> phrase there. But, the, um, uh, but plainly, right from the start, it's going to be dirty, personal, and it will be one of the psychodramas of, uh, of these two front bench lineups. I want to talk about policy because ultimately it's policy that wins and loses elections. Let's take a quick break, though, Peter. Channel 10 is bringing the fun to 6 o'clock weeknights. It's the new show where you've got to think fast or you won't last. Celebrity Name Game. It's the most fun you can have at 6 o'clock weeknights on Channel 10. So welcome back to The Professor and the Hack uh, with me. I'm Hugh Rimmington with uh, PVO, The Professor. Uh, so it is policy in the end that, that makes, you know, all these dramas of, psych, you know, who's this personality, who's that mm. personality on the front bench. Uh, where are the areas where Labor, what is it going to jettison? What is it going to privilege, to use that phrase, if they are going to regroup and make themselves contenders? Well, that's a good question. Uh, they're going to have to look at how they approach the aspirational voter, I think. That's their biggest problem. I'm not sure what the answer to how they fix that is, but certainly there is a perception amongst voters who should be, or at least once were, traditional Labor voters who now uh, have re-emerged as the so-called Howard Battlers under Scott Morrison's banner don't like Labor's approach to higher taxes and what they see essentially is taxing aspiration. Now, whether that's a fair cop is a debate we can have separately and it'll take a lot longer than this podcast, but that is the perception. You know, you look at their outer metropolitan beltway seats, they're struggling with people who give Labor credit over the decades for ensuring universal health care and they give Labor credit for ensuring universal access to education and university education as part of that. But those are ticks now that they get credit for having done in the past, but both sides of politics are perceived to support now and into the future. So Labor, if you like, have tried to build on that and the way they've done so has, at least in the eyes of some voters, hit the aspirational voter, you know, higher top marginal tax rates, not finding a way to reduce taxes down the line, franking credits, which even though they only affect a small number of people, are perceived to have a wider impact than that. They've been more significant than just hitting the baby boomers who are hitting retirement, younger generations who are working on the assumption that they're going to sort of draw on that wealth one day, I think, look at the franking credits hit and wonder how it's going to affect them, higher capital gains taxes as well. These are things that Labor has to work out. Do they hold the line on it and argue it better and that's the problem or... Is it not a failure of argumentation but it's actually a failure of policy and do we therefore change the policy structure? I don't know what the answer to that is because I think that the policy has failures but I also think that at the election they failed to argue their case. So it's hard to really know which way they're going to go. I don't see Anthony Albanese hurling all the policies out and becoming a a Morrison light. I don't think that's his style but he's certainly going to have to jettison some policies. I'm not so sure about whether he's going to try to be a Morrison light. I don't think he's going to get him elected. Do you think he might? Well, I don't think he's going to get him elected, but I'm interested in the, in the business of tax. The, the experiences of the last 20-odd years is, and particularly for Labor, is if you take any policy area and attach the word tax to it, Labor loses. 
Mm. It certainly loses ground. So the franking credits uh, reforms, which are sensible in economic terms, become a retiree tax. Uh, the negative gearing reforms become a housing tax. The resources uh, rent tax that... Um, uh, Wayne Swan tried. Wayne Swan and uh, and Kevin Rudd tried to get in there was uh, was destructive to uh, to Kevin Rudd's prime ministership. Probably the last uh, nail in the coffin. The carbon tax, uh, whether it was a carbon tax or not, became the carbon tax, and that damaged Labor. The last person to get through a major tax uh, take was uh, John Howard, mm. and it nearly cost him the job uh, in the nineteen ninety eight election. So, so the difficulty for Labor, it strikes me is that if you want to be redistributive in any way at all, if you want to have money that allows you to spend more on uh, things that you perceive people need, particularly at the bottom end of it, you've got to get revenue from somewhere and revenue can always have the word tax attached to it and history says at that moment you've lost that next election. So I don't know where they go with that. They're plainly going to throw out... um, or look very closely at the franking credits, the negative gearing, I'd be hugely surprised if they come mm, back in any form. And then you get to the uh, carbon policy where, led by Tony Burke uh, and his comments after the election, there is now a view that having any kind of pricing mechanism on carbon is about to get ditched by Labor because, again, it gets hit with the carbon tax yeah, argument. See, it's interesting, isn't it, because the Liberal Party have essentially given up on economic liberalism in the way that they approach things. But that was always an ideological imperative, not one that was popular with voters. So the fact that they've given that up gives them no electoral harm, even though people that have an ideological view about what a Liberal Party should stand for are sort of up in arms, but that's not going to result in them voting Labor. The Labor Party, though, they only tend to win elections when they argue that it's time. It's either time because time's up on a long-term Liberal government or it's time because society in this country needs some sort of totemic change. In 1970, they've only won three times post-World War II. In 1972, it was both. Society needed that totemic change that Gough Whitlam was offering in the public's view and the Liberals have been in power since 1949, for heaven's sake. So come 1972, it was a perfect storm and even then Gough Whitlam won by, I think, five seats. He only just got over the line. And he was a charismatic leader with an action. Absolutely. The exact opposite of Bill Shorten. In 1983, you had another charismatic leader, Bob Hawke. Uh, You had a do-nothing Fraser government and Hawke at least came across like somebody who, you know, was going to not just tick the let's get rid of this lot because they've done nothing, but, you know, we can entrust the running of the nation to this competent, popular guy. And and bear in mind, the country was in the deepest recession when Hawke came in. There was unemployment at double digits, there was inflation at double digits, there were interest rates at double digits. The drover's dog, as Bill Hayden famously said, could have won that election. Yep. So, but 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 Hawke added uh, charisma. He did. And a vision. So really bad times that resulted in an its time. You know, let's try someone else. Then in 2007, the economy was humming along nicely. There was a view that John Howard was nice and competent. However, Kevin Rudd was a younger John Howard light. He was pledging to be Mr Economic Conservative. So that was really one of those ones where... There wasn't an economic problem like you identify in 83, but there was an its time factor. There was a fatigue with Howard and there was a reluctant let's, you know, get rid of Grandpa because it's time to do yeah, something. And, but Howard had also was pushing work choices. Well, that's so, true. That's so he'd also point. bringing a deeply unpopular piece of policy. So there was the its time, a charismatic figure, not everyone believed at the, the time. charisma <laughs> at the time, Kevin Rudd, 
Um, and the work choices campaign, that's very that's very true. I, for, I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah. But even then, Hugh, eight seats only. So yeah. these three times in history when Labor gets in, something has to either be wrong with the economy, you certainly always need a charismatic figure, uh, or it has to be so long that the government, the coalition government have been in power that it's time for a change. So you look then at where we're at now, come the next election, you'll have had a nine-year Liberal government, but not a nine-year Prime Minister. So no one could argue that that will be the case for Scott Morrison, that his time is up. Is Albo the charismatic figure? Jury's out on that. We'll find out. Uh, the, it's time for the length of the government. I mentioned Scott Morrison's not there long, long enough for that to be the factor. Then you turn to the economy. And we talked about this at the start of this podcast. The economy, if it's going badly, that doesn't necessarily save the Labor Party because people will question whether they're the better economic managers to take over in tough times. So Labor needs two things. It needs to find a program that's attractive possibly an issue that's attractive to people, and it really needs Morrison to stuff up in some way. Uh, and it was interesting, I thought, that Morrison in his first address to the party room after the election was to say, we will govern humbly. And I thought that was a very sensible thing to say. Oh, yeah. Because he's trying to warn everyone, including the ideologues perhaps, especially the ideologues in the party, don't get ahead of yourself. It was hubris over work choices that finally did for uh, for John Howard. Yeah, but Hugh, those ideologues, are, in terms of economic ideologues, there's no way they're going to win out. Uh, there's A, very few of them, and B, they don't have much of a voice, and C, Morrison is too pragmatic. You know, Whereas Howard was an ideologue, so when he got that Senate majority, oh, he was off and running. He'd been Prime Minister for long enough. He was happy to go for it. They're not the ones that I think Scott Morrison has to worry about. He has to worry about the social conservatives. Absolutely. And, well, and I mean, it's interesting that one of the first tests, already we're expecting to see it in the next couple of months, is a Religious Discrimination Act. Yep. Uh, for some in the coalition, it doesn't go far enough. They want a Religious Freedom Act. But look at Scott Morrison on that. He's already hosing that down with his rhetoric. I mean, he's highly religious, but he knows that the religious right in his parliamentary party as well as his organisational party have to be hosed down on that. He's too much of a pragmatist to, to let even that, which is close to his heart as a deeply religious man, be something that brings him down. They're going to produce a, a, a bill which they want to have finish up with it aligning with the Racial Discrimination Act. Mm. So at the moment you can't offend or insult someone uh, and you can't not employ them on the basis of ethnicity and so on. Uh, but there's no such protection about their Christianity or, or their, you know, if you choose not to hire a Muslim person or because they're a Christian or something, then there's no such protection. So they want that uh, to be given equivalent status. But that brings in Section 18C of the mm -hmm. Racial Discrimination Act, which, of course, famously makes it um, unlawful to offend someone on the basis of race and ethnicity. That means that depending on how they draft this law and how it gets through the Senate, assuming it goes through the Senate, that it will become illegal in Australia to offend someone on the basis of their Christianity. Is that really what we're going to have? Well, I find it ironic that they're thinking about that because the same people that want that have a problem with Section 18C and the fact that you can offend someone based on their race or ethnicity. So if they think that's bad, why would they think it's good to have an equivalent law around religion? But by the same token... That irony or even you could argue to some extent hypocrisy exists on the other side of the ledger as well, doesn't it? Because people who like 18C because they think it's wrong to be allowed to offend someone based on their race or ethnicity, why do they not think it's wrong to have equivalent protections around religion? So it's it's a difficult argument. This All I'm saying 
is I think that Scott Morrison will pay some lip service to it, but ultimately he'll avoid making it the kind of hot-button issue that it otherwise might. And one of the ways he might get around that, and I know that this is something that Matthias Corman mentioned on Insiders and he was reiterating something that Scott Morrison has already said, if they do go down the path of religious protections, they will be protections for people having non-religious views as much as people who have religious views. So you can't insult or offend someone based on their religion any more than you can insult or offend someone based on their atheism, for example. Interesting. And one other potential area which has all kinds of gnarly bits to it. Uh, there was quite a lot of uplift for Scott Morrison when he named Ken Wyatt to be the first Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Affairs. Uh, there's great power in seeing Ken Wyatt take the oath of office wearing the possum mm. skin uh, coat. I think that there are um, there'd be few Australians who didn't feel that that was um, uh, an imagery to which they wanted to associate themselves with. Uh, you know, that'd be my view on it. The difficulty there, of course, is that beyond the symbolism, there are still those unresolved questions about whether there should be a voice in Parliament, uh, whether there should be a, um, uh, as was suggested by the Uluru Statement of, from the Heart, that there should be some other mechanism by which Indigenous people get to... An almost third chamber. Well, that was what Turnbull says is the case. Those who support it say it was nothing like that. Mm. But nevertheless, that's where the argument will lie. Uh, is this potentially a difficulty, as some have already suggested, that Scott Morrison might feel that he wants to be the guy, uh, that for all his caution, that he would like to be someone who advances in some way this endless open sore of, of, of how we deliver a better State of the Union, a better reconciliation with the first Australians. Uh, are there potential dangers for him in that? I think there are dangers, but it is interesting because I think he sees off in the distance that as one of his potential legacy issues. You know, if he can bring about some type of, you know, accepted all-round reconciliation on this front in whatever form it takes, uh, constitutional recognition, this notion of, of some type of representation, you know, third chamber or otherwise, if he can find a pathway through, having already been the Prime Minister that appointed Australia's first Indigenous Cabinet Minister and indeed to the Indigenous Affairs portfolio, he'll see that as a potential legacy issue. And Conservatives like to have little legacy issues like that. I say that because they see their primary job as keeping Labor away from the Treasury benches, but there's not a lot of history in that, is there? That's a pretty sort of short-term thing. It oh, keeps personally, I think it's great, though, isn't it? You know, the, the, the ones who get revered are those who win elections. Well, they, yeah, and, but that's, that's... Except for Malcolm Fraser, who won a bunch of elections and they don't revere him at all. Well, they did at the time, though, and then, yeah. and then he sort of, you know, because he lost the way he did in 83. That's the other thing. Liberals aren't supposed to lose big, and Fraser lost big in 83, whereas, you know, even at the end of the disastrous post-Menzies period ahead of the 72 election, they didn't lose big, and Howard didn't lose big on a seats basis when he lost to Rudd. So that, that, that's always been a problem for men, for Fraser. But it's, it's interesting because, you know, Fraser has um, the Vietnamese boat people that he allowed in as his you know, legacy item, if you like, in between not much else. Um, Menzies was the one that presided over the 67, well, I mean, it was just post his period, but it was essentially you know, off the back of his developments uh, around the 67 uh, referendum uh, for Indigenous people. John Howard has gun reform. So they like to have these things on top of their traditional role of keeping Labor away from power and just winning elections because they're Conservatives. So I think I could see for someone like Scott Morrison, he wants to get Indigenous recognition in some form as his thing. Malcolm Turnbull 
you know, is desperately clinging to, you know, the same-sex marriage plebiscite uh, as his thing. I don't know what Tony Abbott's thing is. He stopped the boats maybe. But that that is what conservative leaders like to try and do and I think Scott Morrison's no different. But it's going to be hard, you know. I mean, Ken White's in a tough... He's going to be the ham in the sandwich on this one. Absolutely. Well, if he can get that as a legacy and if he can get the country rallying around a notion about uh, a better and, and more reasonable uh, place for... First Australians, mm. and if that results even in some some better practical figures in terms of mental health and life expectancy, it'll be no small legacy at all. Peter Agreed. Van Onselen, so good to talk to you. Likewise, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Western Front. We're back on the airwaves. Tim Gossage. Beautiful looking men. We're now on a podcast. And Lockie Reed. So what is this show all about? For those who don't know, The Western Front was a footy show. It's a WA-flavoured show. The Western Front, now available on Acast, iTunes, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Perth's own locally produced footy show right here on Network 10.